listen, uh, I, I believe in this world in absolute honesty. If not candor, at least honesty. Let's just for once admit a few things that for years we've been flubbing around trying to pretend don't exist. We've been hiding under the carpet. We've been brushing under the radiators. We've been sticking under the doors, hoping that nobody will see. Let's just once admit a few things, okay? <laughs> well, all right. First of all, I want to... I, I, you know, the, the the Food and Drug Act... Now, now, all you people, I don't get confused in there. Now, the Food and Drug Act specifies that whenever there are deleterious contents in any product sold, they have to label it as such. Right? In other words, there's a little skull and crossbones on the bottle that says, hands off, else you become a skull and crossbones yourself. Oh. <laughs> By the way, are you aware that that's why they put skulls and crossbones on there? Not because the skull itself is intrinsically a frightening object. It is because if that little skull is there, it says, if you drink this, this is going to be your portrait. It's a por self-portrait, actually. There's a little two bones on the head there, you know. Have a couple of shots of that iodine at the right time and look out. And, and you notice they always have little skull and crossbones? Well, why do they stop only at drug products? Why don't they have radio shows, for example, if they contain deleterious contents, you put a little skull and crossbones on it before. But you, you drink this at your own risky, right? I think it's only right. I think that before Ed Sullivan comes on, if he has a couple of real clinkers tonight that's liable to erode your brain, there should be a little note that says, for those of you who are about to proceed into this program, if you don't mind having your brain eroded, continue. But we are compelled by the Food and Drug Act to say this. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the Yale marching team, the dog act that comes on where the dogs jump through the hoops with the flames. I mean, you know, after all, how many, how many dogs can you take jumping through flames just before you see the third act of... Boris Gudenov by... Uh, what, what is his name who wrote that? Who wrote Boris Gudenov again? Crying out well, let's see. Boris Gudenov. Boris Gudenov. Boris Gudenov. How many of you know who Boris Gudenov was? No, he did not have a clothing shop on West 49th Street. That was not the same Boris Gudenov. That was Boris Rachmaninoff who had that clothing shop over there. I remember old Boris on a Friday afternoon. Oh, well, that's another story. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, I remember the time I went in there and he was trying to... Oh, well. Oh, the olden golden days. But nevertheless, uh, I, I do believe in, in, in a little candor. And so I am, no, I am labeling, before we go any further in this, I am labeling this program as one that has deleterious contents to the health. Now, I don't want anybody to be about two-thirds of the way into the show, get the, you know, get the bug in the air, get the screaming memes, eyeballs bugging out, your feet start to sweat, and the first thing that comes surging up, the, what is this nut saying? Get this idiot off the air! You know, that kind of stuff. Well, it's your fault. I'm sorry. There are some guys that drink malts. There are other guys that drink iodine. And the guys that drink iodine know what they're drinking, I presume. Okay. And for all of you malt drinkers, go on down the dial. There's a place where they're playing soft string music. There's a place where there's a, there's a nut hollering about this is the greatest new rock and roll to come along since the wheel. They're all down there. There's a guy that will tell you the time. There's another guy that will give you the nice old weather. So, not old Shep tonight. You hear that? I don't know what's the matter with me today. It's just a terrible scene here. 
So I'm just telling you there's going to be deleterious contents. First of all, I'm going to talk about stuff that you should never have mentioned. Like, for example, tonight's theme of the show is the innate desire that we all have not to get up ever in the morning. I mean, you know, to hide under the covers? Wouldn't it be great if they made a universal cover that people could all hide under forever? You know what I'm talking about, that urge? You, you get this about once every three or four weeks, and it is a universal feeling. You're lying in the sack. It's morning. There's this faint grayness out there. You can hear the sound just trickling through the cheesecloth curtains. You hear the clock ticking. You're under the covers. You're kind of warm, soft, relaxed. And then you know you've got to go out and face it. It. Well, you, you sort of stir a little bit. And the clock is ticking. You will have awakened, you see, 15 minutes before the alarm goes off. That's See, if the alarm had gone off, you don't have time to think about it. It goes off, you jump up. Next thing you know, you're pouring cold water on your face. You're going, blah, blah, blah. You know that stuff. And, uh, and you're ready. You know, you're out there. You're out on the firing line before you even have any time to think about it. This is one of the reasons why in the war, you know, they don't like to give guys too much time to think about it before they shoot them in the cannon out, you know, towards as you put them in the cannon out, they go. They don't. They don't give them time to think about it. That's why they get the guys from the very second a guy gets in the army, he's running. They don't want to give him too much time to think. Oh, boy, I'll tell you. That's when it, the, the erosion starts to set in, really. And a lot of guys in the army think, what is this? Four o'clock in the morning, I'm scrubbing the walls. What is this stuff? Because it's at four o'clock in the morning that the ghosts begin to fly. It is at 4 a.m. that those great, dark, heavy shapes like old furniture begin to move around in your mind, creaking and screaking and dredging up ancient fears. Oh, boy, please, quick, bring it on there. Nothing but song and dance. Bring it on. All together, gang, bring it on. She's got eyes of blue. I never cared for eyes of blue, but she's got eyes of blue. And that's my weakness now. She's got her dimple cheeks. I never cared for dimple cheeks. Wow, she's got dimple cheeks. And that's my weakness now. Oh, me, oh, my, oh, my. Oh, me, oh, me, oh, my. Oh, I could be good. I should be good, but. Oh, wow. She likes the bill and coo. I never cared for bill and coo, but she likes the bill and coo. So that's my weakness now. She's got fuzzy teeth. I never liked fuzzy teeth, but wah 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 wah. All right, gang, let's go. basement tonight. We had a couple of kegs of good old rich white Valentine ale. I could sing you lyrics that would curl your hair. Alright, gang. Alright, alright. That scared those ghosts away for a minute, didn't it? Oh no, seriously, do you know, uh, really, do you know that, that, that uh, psychologists and sociologists have long believed with great reason, too, 
that that the that the really the, the subterranean reasons and uh, <laughs> boy they're there the subterranean reasons that we have things like uh, oh song dance wine plays musicals all this stuff that the reason we have this is because for one brief instant it scares away those ghosts that flutter around us. Uh, by the way, speaking of those ghosts, you, you keep plenty of that stuff up there, will you? The wine, women, and song, just keep it on tap. I, 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 guess, I guess most people in civilian life, and I think this is one of the reasons why the Army, and, and this, this will be an Army night. I'm going to tell you an Army story. So those of you who, who get scared when you hear Army stories, just get, get out, you know, leave. But I'm, I'm going to tell you a story tonight. You just have to, you know, once in a while, you just got to level this. There's times when you can fool around. There are times when you can fake it. And, and, and that's most of the time. Have you ever had the feeling that you're just fooling around? Your whole life is fooling around? <laughs> kind of faking it, ad-libbing. <laughs> oh, you know, what, 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 even, what even is the worst thing, to, the, the, the terrible discovery that some people make in life? is the discovery that even the guys who seem to be official, who really have somehow tapped onto the mother load of existence, who, who, have, who have made it work, when you get real close to them at 3 o'clock in the morning and look them right in the eye, you find that they are faking it and phoning it and ad-libbing it too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I stood one time on the bridge with a captain. Now, this is a captain who really was about three millimeters this side of getting his admiralty, which he got about two weeks later, became an admiral. And we're up on the bridge of this gigantic carrier, and we're moving through the darkest night that I had ever seen in my life. And there is nothing darker, believe me, than to be out at sea in the Mediterranean at three o'clock in the morning aboard a carrier that is operating under, well, what they call red condition, or condition red. Every light is turned off, everybody is battened down, and the guys that are up have got tin hats on, so you can't even see their eyes. It's just walking around in the dark out there. Oh, I don't know of anything darker or scarier than a, than a ship. It's a strange feeling. I'm talking about a warship. A strange feeling to be aboard a warship under under actual conditions. You've been there. Under actual conditions of war, when she's working through the darkness at about uh, 35 knots, oh boy, and they really go through that darkness, keeping, keeping moving always, and the ship is humming and becomes a total world unto itself, moving through something as remote as outer space. A guy, believe me, a guy flying in the, in the, outermost, in the outermost rings beyond Saturn could not be more isolated. I'm serious than a ship at sea at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning in wartime conditions when there are no, no friends out there, you know, only enemies out there. See, the only enemies, no friends. Uh, during wartime conditions in total blackness. Now, why, why is the parallel the same? Well, because space is an unfriendly place, too, and it's also an unknown thing. Uh, no matter how much a scientist... Uh, divines about space, they, it, it's scary. <laughs> Even scientists are scared of it. They look at it. And that's the same thing with the ocean. That the ocean next to space, and probably in many ways even more than space, 
is one of the last great unknown things that man has to face. We know very little about the ocean. And then almost all that we do know about the ocean is that it, it kills you. <laughs> it ain't about to be friendly. And that's exactly with space. Nobody know, Nobody thinks of pockets of soft, warm air in space where a man can fly around at their flap in his arms, you know, living forever in Eden. No, it's, it's, it's a hostile, completely unmoving. And I think that's the thing about nature. It doesn't care. Nature has no investment in man. Not a bit of it. Any more than it has an investment in the squirrel. Nature does not weep when a squirrel is killed by a falling rock. It just quietly goes on. Does it go on, though? That's another question, you see, because going on is a, is a, is a mankind concept. Let's put it this way. The rock falls on the squirrel, and nature is still there, unchanged. Is it going on? Has it ever not gone on? It's a good question. There it is. It's there. And that's what scares people about it. There's the ocean under there. And when the sun is shining, and there are guys out there on their surfboards, and their little white boats off Long Island, somehow the ocean seems to be like the Jersey Turnpike. You got it under control. <laughs> Pay the toll and you're okay. Own the boat and it's all right. Somehow you can forget the ocean. You go, a little boat, you know, goes along. And there's the ocean down there. It's fine. It's the thing the boat goes on. But does it really? Have you ever stopped your boat and looked down into it? Just look straight down in the water. Just look down for about 20 minutes. It begins to slowly seep into you, into the marrow of your bones. Any good seaman, in fact, Melville, Conrad, Conrad, Melville was a great one to say this. Melville said, he says, I am not one of these guys that look out at the ocean and say, oh, there's my home. There is my eternal mother, the mother of us all. He says, oh, yeah? Oh, boy. He sailed how many years before the mast on whalers? And he knew something about the ocean. Well, guys who are on ships far out to sea at 3 o'clock in the morning, even though the ship is the most fantastic mechanical contrivance that man has ever put together, he's conscious of this. And you can hear it rushing past, and oh, boy, is it black. Speaking of eternal primeval fears, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. Like a giant bottomless sea. And there isn't a guy up at this station who does not recognize there is something totally mysterious about it. And if he makes one false move, the sharks are like shadows coming up at the dark. Like shadows with chromium silver and stainless steel fangs that are ineffably moving forward, always, immutably moving. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget the first day I came up here. Now, you were on my show. I remember it well, the very first day. Right, over across the hall. Right. They've put up fancy wallpaper now. I have now a $17 microphone instead of that two-button $6 job that we got from Sears. Oh, yeah. You know, the one we got with the tape recorders that came along free with it? Yeah, those, that, that one. I remember those mics. Yeah, oh, yeah. The ones that you get the shock every time you touch them? <laughs> well, you know, that's right. This radio station had a thing built into it. For every time the, the, every time the performer touched the mic, he got a shock. 
It taught him that this was an unfriendly atmosphere, and he better know it. Nobody owns the microphones here, fellas. There ain't one single guy here who owns that switch on that turn. The engineers think they do. (laughs) Well, not the ones that think. Let's put it this way. The other ones do. And, 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 and I remember, you know, the, the, the reason this ties in with this, they put up fancy new wallpaper. They've washed the windows in the studios here now. They've laid down formica on the floor out there in, instead of the old cobblestones we used to have on the floor there, you know. And they've drained the swamp out there in the hall and put instead a water cooler. We used to have a bucket out there, you know, we'd, we'd, uh, with, the, with the scoop and the tin cup and all that. They've put all that stuff, but it hasn't fooled anybody. The same old loudmouths are blabbing into the same old microphones. <laughs> it hasn't fooled a single one of us. It's, oh, yeah, oh, I know. The first day I came into this station, I'll never forget it. Let me tell you a story. And, and it's a story of life. It has nothing to do with WOR. Nothing to do with WOR. This is life. Life, life. Like that C. Oh, yes, that C, the same thing. Many a guy has set out to sea for 17 straight years in his little boat. And one day in May, the sun shining, the birds singing, the big white clouds floating overhead, he does not come back. Just doesn't come back. Now, of course, everybody on the shore there say, well, you know, he made a mistake. But they know he didn't make a mistake. They knew that it has to happen inevitably. Some, If you go out to sea enough times, <laughs> that's the way it goes. You just keep pushing it, that's all. Well, the first day I arrived here at the station, I came in, and, and you know, I was going to go on the air, and it was all exciting, you know, everything looked great, and the guys were walking around with shiny eyes and, and bushy tails. And, and, uh, and of, course, of course, the thing, they all wear their jackets, and you don't notice that under those bushy tails they got stripes. Every one of them is a tiger underneath it, and they all have, uh, believe me, they all have squirrel tails sticking out. A man is a great hybrid animal, really. A tiger is a tiger every inch of the way. He's got claws that are seven inches long. A a real tiger. Have you ever gone over to the zoo and looked at the tiger? You can't, you you look at his tail and it looks deadly. You look at his feet and it looks deadly. You look at his mouth and you know this is not made for eating kennel ration dog biscuits. Not at all. This is not a fruit eater. He does not eat cherries and grapes. Not with those gigantic white fangs. You are not fooled. Have you ever looked in a tiger's eye? Just go over here to the zoo once. He just looks. There ain't no mistake in it. That's what makes man so deadly, friends. You can look at a man from any direction, and he alternately seems such friendly. He's such a friendly thing. I mean, with those little soft feet there with no claws on them. How can this little thing be it, you know? I mean, seriously. And look at those blue, watery, weepy eyes. It's true. No hair. Absolutely bald. It looks like like a little grub worm, you know. Funny. He has no poison sacs like the pit adder. The pit adder has poison. Coo! His teeth come out. It's poison squirts. Man has no poison sacs. He doesn't have any claws, stainless steel claws, nothing, none of this. Yeah? Oh, sure. And, and, and the thing about man is that he's the only animal who liked the... Well, actually, the chameleon has almost partly uh, beaten the problem. That man can be whatever he wants to be. 
And so I came up here and I saw all those soft little fluffy squirrel tails. You know, a squirrel, who can get mad at a squirrel, you know, the little blue eyes. Well, I walked into the studio there and I was getting my stuff together. And you were around, you were, you were working with me, you know that. So we're working there, we're putting the stuff together. And I came out and there was a guy. He was kind of bent over. He was bent over, and he had an old tweed jacket with leather patches at the at the elbows, and he had a couple of calabash pipes sticking out of his pocket. You know, one of those guys, and he had gray flannel slacks that were all worn, and he was he was wearing moccasins, and he had a couple of wagons out there, and they were wagons, you know, the kind they used to move stuff in offices when cabinets are being moved off. And these little wagons and a couple of guys were helping him. And he was moving all kinds of papers and stuff. And he had papers and he had records and stuff. And he was moving. They were moving the thing through here. And I took a look out there and nobody was saying much except they were just kind of friendly. And once in a while somebody would help him push the stuff out the door. And I came in and I started to do my show. And there was a brief pause and I finished doing what I was doing. And I walked out and I said, who is that? He says, oh, you know, he's... Uh, one of the guys, he's uh, he's leaving. I said, he's leaving? I had somebody else sitting back there by the water cooler with that self-satisfied expression of the guy who was not leaving. He said, to, oh, yeah, yeah. Been here 17 years. He was the morning man. <laughs> he had the morning show for 17 years. Man and boy, and they don't even remember his name here now. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. 17 years, and there is not one guy, and they worked with him here. Not one guy can remember his name, and I'm sure a lot of guys around here now at the station say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, oh, yeah. They can vaguely remember his face. Do you know how long 17 years is, friend? 17 years, let's say conservatively rating a man's average lifespan as 70 years. Let's say, conservatively rating a man's... How, how long is a man an adult, a working adult? I'd say roughly, probably, no more than 35 that he's actually working. When you get up past 60, you know, you're kind of retired and at the, you move into another area. I would say roughly 35 years. This guy had spent half of his working life, and the guys around him had spent half of their working lives with him. And he's being moved out. Now, this is inevitable, of course. But... The thing that's, I think, the most significant thing about it is that nobody remembers him. Nobody remembers him, just like that. Well, so don't tell me about the about the uh, about the nerveless depth of the sea. The sea doesn't remember either. It does not remember those boats that have swallowed up in the year four thousand B.C. It just keeps the bones down there in the esophagus. That's all. It doesn't remember the names. Oh, one of the scariest sights uh, that, that, that I think is given to the eye of man. Have you ever seen movies taken through a diving bell down on the bottom of the sea, a diving bell just surveying a sunken, great, massive ocean liner? Well, I'll tell you, I, I had, I had, a, I had a, real, a real privilege here a couple of years ago and this this privilege, uh, I, I was working for a movie company, uh, and and they have a lot of films of very unusual things that you never see in movies. You just don't see these things. And I think this is the really great value of film. I think film is wasted making movies. <laughs> I'm serious. I think it's pap and a yard wide. 
just like I think paper and print is wasted generally on the countless, uh, uh, you know, uh, short stories with a, with a lovely little dark girl meets the tall, handsome man who's an XB-29 bomber pilot, and they're, you know, this, uh, you know, crying out, oh, boy. I mean, it's wasted. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, who's, uh, a thousand years from now, when they try to decipher that, it'll be total path. They won't know what they're talking about. This is, what is this stuff? Just like uh, I'm sure that there must have been that equivalent of the Egyptians in the papyrus. There must be a fiction written in that, too. But the real stuff is is still around. And I'll tell you what this film was. We were looking at all kinds of films that were... It was being done for the national, the International Geophysical Year. You remember this? A couple of years back? And they had assembled films from all over the world. Very rare films. Films that were done with, with an actual serious purpose in mind. I don't mean, I don't mean guys making a film, but I mean people recording things on film. And one of the films that they had, it was taken by a foreign government. Uh, this was a film that was shot underwater in color with all kinds of special equipment. It was a shot, a film of the Andrea Doria lying on her side or laying on her side if you prefer that at the ocean bottom I can't tell you what a scary film that was and this the way they did this thing it was a very peculiar set of circumstances but the way they did it you seem to get the effect how they did it I don't know that this device whatever it was it was taking to film was traveling it was like a dolly shot it was traveling along the length of this ship and the light was playing on it. They had a, some kind of a special traveling light because at that depth, the water is totally black. See? <laughs> and it's like, oh boy. <laughs> and it just moved along there. And the film that I was watching was totally silent. But I could just hear as it moved along some sort of dark, somber, rising and falling, tremulous music. moving across and then it started back and it got about three quarters of the way back and it began to fade out apparently their light was beginning to go whatever that high intensity light was it had a short life duration you could see it starting to flicker and then gradually it pulled in and in until there was nothing but black water and silence and the film ran on for about another 30 or 40 seconds and that was it and we all sat there for a minute in that dark projection room and somebody then you know tried to bring us back to real life you know he was a little scared see he says uh, well uh, <clears throat> you think we can use it Manny and Manny was still in the hypnosis sitting over there you know he was scared <laughs> somehow Manny could see that film with a, with a subtitle coming on and all it says is life and then you can hear Maddie slowly come. He says, well, uh, uh, oh, what was that? What was that, Stan? Uh, what would you say, Stan? Out of the darkness. And Stan says, well, you think we can use that, uh, Maddie? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I, well, we'll think about it. And I never saw that film again. What a scary film. Now, another film we saw. I shouldn't be telling you these films. They, 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 they curl your hair. Another film that I saw that was, a, that was a real gasser was a film that utilized rockets. 
they placed a camera in the nose of a rocket and shot it right through the Aurora Borealis. Put that one in your thing and smoke it. See, uh, think whether Stanley Kubrick's ever done anything like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, there I was. You know, they brought this film in. And, and uh, this was done, by the way, by the Russians, incidentally, in case you're interested. And, uh, of course, this is the International Geophysical Year. Everybody was exchanging films. And, you know, when you're working on a thing like that, you have a sense that people really can get together, really. There is a sense that now here we've got the Russian, we've put it in, and, and, and yet you had the sense, you know, they're looking up, and uh, they had a, a brief film before it of, of installing the camera in the rocket. You see these guys, and they've got fur hoods on, and everything. They're up in the up in the Arctic, I guess, and they're wind howling. They're putting this thing in, and everything's ready. Off you go. Well, you had this sense of a lot of stuff jiggling, moving up and down, and something is coming faster and faster and faster, and you can see a lot of smoke and swirling things and what seemed to be movement, great shadows, great ghosts moving back and forth. And the rocket is going right into the northern lights, right into it, at the speed of, oh, maybe seven, 8,000 miles per hour. Fantastic rocket speed, you know. We're going up, 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 and it's going... And you see now suddenly... The stars, and, and, and stars don't become, they aren't stars when, you, when you're moving at, at 7,000 miles an hour straight up and you are now how many miles from the, from the face of the earth. They're not stars any longer. They're great, staring, red, yellow, green, and blue eyes. Great eyes, fantastic lights, just glaring at you all over. Millions of them all looking. It's as though there is an entire firmament of people, eyes, animals, creatures, subterranean ghosts, all looking at the earth, waiting for it to blow up or fist fight or kill itself or, or waiting for it to be devoured by one of them, you know, moving forward and grabbing it. I remember as a kid, I wonder how, my, I wonder how many of you remember how Flash Gordon started. Well, I'm going to tell you how Flash Gordon started. I shouldn't, you know, this is a terrible thing. I, again, I'm giving you a test as an American. Nobody knows this. Who, who, uh, all right, all right, Ming the Merciless. All right, who was Ming the Merciless? Okay, uh, what was the planet that he was merciless over? That's right. That's right. Yeah, see, he came from the same rotten background. You can see that we were... We <laughs> you see, it runs in the family. <laughs> That's right, it was the planet Mongo. All right, now, now, how was Fla the first episode of Flash Gordon opened this way? Earth was in panic. It was in total panic. A scientist, and I will ask you what his name is shortly afterwards on the exam, a scientist had detected that a planet from an outer, some kind of outer solar system had gotten out of control <laughs> and was approaching Earth inexorably and was about to strike Earth and destroy it forever. And there was a great light in the sky, and it was coming closer and closer. And this scientist had detected, he knew this, you see, he knew this. And everybody else thought it was, a, uh, it was, it was like Halley's Comet or something. They thought it was, you know, but he knew what it was because he had intercepted some kind of strange messages that this was not only a planet on its way, but it was a deliberate plot that it was being steered there by, guess who, the Merciless. That's right. And Flash Gordon, by the way, was an astronaut. Flash Gordon was a scientist, and 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 uh, 
he was an astronaut in the early days. He was that's really what he was. He and 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 that's how he got in on it. And and he and the scientists and the and the authorities worked out a scheme to propel a rocket to this thing before it hit. Yeah. Okay, so the fear is always deep in mankind. Now, what kind of a rotten memory do I have? Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there are only a few moments in, in, in life when you have a sense of that kind of fear. Generally, you can get yourself involved in cleaning the rug. <laughs> You'll forget about it, you know. Generally, you can get yourself involved in going to the bank and arguing with the guy behind the cage. You know, that's enough to keep you busy for a while. Or you can get yourself involved that you're having trouble with your valves, you know, your car. That'll hold you for another 10 seconds in your life. Then you can get involved with yelling at chicks. That'll hold you for another maybe 150 years. That's enough usually to carry a guy through his whole lifetime without thinking about Ming the Merciless and the great planets and the sea and the skull and crossbones on the bottle of the iodine. All these things you see we can keep brushing. I told you, I told you not to listen, lady. Don't get mad now. It's coming out again. So, so <laughs> I told you. Yeah, I told you to get over there to WPAT where they're friendly and nice and play soft music for you. I told you. Now you've done it again. You didn't You didn't believe I was... Uh, I'm telling you the truth. So we can brush this stuff under. Well, there are only a few moments when you really know this, that, that, the, that, that this is a hostile and an uncaring solar system. One of them is aboard a ship. One of them is aboard a ship at 2 o'clock in the morning in the Mediterranean. Nothing but hostile, hostile things around you. And I'm standing on the bridge one night with this captain, and we're looking out through the glass. I'll tell you what ship it was, in case you're interested. It was the Essex. And we're, yes, the Essex, the old attack carrier. Maybe you might even think, he's now an admiral and a, and, and a tremendous one. Fascinating guy. And a kind of a, a hawk-faced man. He, he really looked like the idea that, that poor old, that poor old, yes, CVA-9 when I was aboard her. She is now CVS-9, anti-sub now. Uh, when I was aboard her, she was an attack carrier and was, was, was working, was, was working with the Forrestal. And these two attack carriers were the attack carriers in the Med, in, in, the, in the Sixth Fleet. And we're moving out in the darkness, and, and we're, we're looking through the absolute stygian blackness. And I'm with the captain. Remember, the boss. This ship has 3,000 souls aboard. And she's got all her, her, her AT-4s, all her, all her AD-4s are all below deck, you know, and a couple of big ships are laying out there, a couple of big uh, 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 bombers equipped with with real fighting equipment are laying out there on those two cats forward you know on that on that flight deck and we're moving along at at, at it seemed like 5000 knots you know boy those carriers when they've got her wide open you cannot believe how the wind screams over those flight decks it screams and we were we were going forward at at practically full full speed we were at what they call flank speed and she is biting into the wind and it's whoa! whistling past that bridge and you feel the glass and it's black out there you see nothing and all that we can see is this little tiny light inside the bridge it's shielded it's it's a it's a shielded light and it's kind of red you know and you can see a chart and you can see in the darkness back of us the helmsman there it's a chief you know and he's on duty and he's standing back there at the helm and and you see a couple of just barely discernible figures of a couple of of uh, lieutenants and maybe an ensign or two back then. Once in a while, they say something into the phone. 
you know, they're talking mysterious things into the phone down to the engine room and up to the up to the uh, up to the com room, you know, and over to, over the sink and CIC, and you hear, and above us we hear the radar, the gigantic radar screens go, on on board a ship going full speed in combat, and this was in action, by the way. Everything vibrates, hums, and yet everything is dark. And it's going... And you... The ship itself is alive, and she's plunging into this darkness, and the wind is hitting the... Oh, it's hitting the bridge like it's out of a... The glass is going, and the captain is standing there looking straight ahead out in the darkness. And I'm standing next to him. And, of course... I am me, and he is a captain. It's nothing to do with rank. His total orientation to this world, of course, was different from mine. He was in charge. Not only was he in charge, but he knew every last, lousy, miserable, grease-covered, beautiful inch of this ship. He just knew it. He, he'd, been, <laughs> he'd been on Navy ships since he was 15, you know, that kind of guy. He'd been through the Academy nine times. He'd been through 18 major battles off Okinawa. He had seen, and by the way, this ship right down below the bridge and to the left, three kamikazes had hit, one after the other, off Okinawa. You could still see where the repairs had been made. Three of them had hit right down there. And two days before, we had lost two banjos. Two days before, we had lost two furies on, on deck, coming in on, on, on landings at night. I can tell you a story. So this is a ship that had been there, you know. And the old Essex had fought all the way through the Pacific battles. All the way. And, we're, and here's the captain now. He is, he's got this hawk-like look. And I knew something about this captain. This captain had been the exec aboard one of the great carriers in the Pacific that went down in the Coral Sea battle. And he had been out to sea. He'd been, he'd been cast adrift for like 22 days until he was finally picked up by a Japanese corvette and later released... Oh, yeah. So he knew about this, see. So we're standing we're standing on the bridge, you see, and we're looking out, and the wind is hitting this thing. Oh, boy, and it's dark, and we're howling through the, through the waves, and you can't see the sea, you see. That's the thing at night. This, the, everything becomes part of a, of a gigantic, mysterious hole. Don't think for a minute you can see the ocean when you're aboard a carrier at night at, at 3 in the morning. You cannot. You can't see the ship either, you know. Everything becomes part of that void that we're all afraid of. It's there. You can't see the sky. Unless rare moments when you can see the sky, when you might see clouds, or, or maybe you might even see stars. But generally, you don't see that even. I don't know why. It's just black all around you. And you can see just vaguely going up into the darkness in all directions, the ship just fading off, you see, off into the distance. Well, we're, that's it. That's your world now. That's your world. There is no sky. There is no ocean. There is no shore. And I can't tell you what a great feeling it is to go down to the wardroom where the lights are on and the guy's got the coffee on. Oh, my God, I can't tell you how that feels. And you sit down there, you know, and those those kind of, they always have sort of soft brown amber furniture and, and, and co colorings and wardrooms. Yeah, now green, light greens, you see. Anything to make you remind, to remind you of the earth and, and, and to remind you that there is grass 
and to remind you that somewhere there's a sun, you know, they'll paint walls yellow, you know. Anything but that gray sea color, oh boy. Oh, except I have to tell you this. Where do you think everything is gray and sea color? In the forecastle where the EM live. <laughs> they're reminded of it all the time. So anyway, we're standing aboard this. We're standing on, on this on this bridge. Oh, the wind is howling. And I look out there. And remember, we're looking forward over the flight deck of a kid. Can't even see the deck. And the wind is howling. And the ensign back is... And I have a pair of cans on. And I can hear the lookouts talking on the intercom all the way back and forth the ship. And I hear one guy in the stern. He's looking out in the blackness in the back. He's, ah, hello, Charlie. Hey, uh, uh, how are you back there? And then I hear a guy way up there on the lookout somewhere way above us. You know, they have a guy in the crow's nest way above us. And he's talking. And everybody talks aboard the ship and their little cans and little phones to remind each other that they're all still there. You know what I'm talking about? In the darkness. And one guy's talking to another guy. You hear this? And I'm talk they're talking back and forth. And there's the captain. He's a hawk-faced man, bronzed. He's got these creases, you know, that captains get and the little things around the eyes. And he's got a scrunchy, raunchy old old uh, khaki hat pulled down. And on it is this great big rusty salt-encrusted silver eagle. <laughs> oh, boy, he's a real captain, I'm telling you. And his collars are all raunchy and turned up. And there's another rusty old rotten silver eagle that's dented and one of the wings is busted off. And he's standing there, and his pants are hanging down, and he's tall. He's about six feet three, like Gary Cooper. He weighs about 150 pounds of solid steel gristle. And he's looking out. And, and I'm standing next to him, and I say, Captain, and he says, yeah. Doesn't this ever scare you out of your skull? And he turns to me. He says, I can't remember one minute when I wasn't scared out of my skull. He looks back out to see him. It's going. And all the way down, I hear the cans. These poor little simple seamen who think that up there, he's going to protect us. The captain will protect us. Well, And now we leave the Essex, the sister ship of the class. Thank you, Gene Shepard. This is WORAM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. Coming up, the news with Bruce Elliott.